Hi, everybody. You're listening to Not Safe for Wonks. This is Rachel Kahn. I'm here with Kennedy T. Cooper, Brandon Buchanan, and Corey Archibald of Brand New Congress. Uh, Brand New Congress is a PAC that has been getting a lot of amazing candidates into office, including but not limited to AOC. Uh, and, you know, I really just want to know, I'd be nice to the PAC, and then the PAC gives me money? Is that money how I do it? Like, I befriend you, very and then nice. you pay me. Infinity money. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not really how it works. Um, oh. There's, yeah, no, it's a little more complicated than that. There's a lot of like SEC law involved about like you know you got to be running for office. I know. All right. I know. Well, Corey, thank you for coming on. Uh, we've got George Soros coming on right behind you, so it's oh, been okay. a really, well, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> but we'll, we'll have to do that another time. We'll just yeah, you know. Well, tell, tell Daddy George to cut us a check, would you? Welcome to Not Safe for Wonks. It's me, Rachel, here with Kennedy T. Cooper and Brandon right. Cannon. And we have with us today Corey Archibald of, let me get this right, Brand New Congress, uh, which is a PAC. And I believe that means I get money now, right? Got lots of money. Make it rain. We need we need tokens. From the PACs, because the PACs have the lots of the money. And then yeah. if I'm nice, then they give me money. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's um, that's that's not quite how it works. Um, okay. But happy to kind of clear that up for you if you'd like. Um, yeah. <laughs> First, I mean, you before you be... do that, Corey, sure. just just say hi to the audience. Tell them who hi. you are, and uh, you know, for the people out there listening who might not really know that much about you, know that much about Brand New Congress, just give give a brief intro. Yeah, totally. So I'm Corey Archibald, as has already been mentioned. I am the chair of the board for Brand New Congress. And what we do at Brand New Congress is we're helping regular working people get elected to Congress so that we will have a legislative body that actually serves all of us and not the corporations or the cabal of billionaires that who give them their marching orders right now. We're, uh, we're trying to create a working class Congress. So that's what we do. All right. Well, that's intriguing. How do you do it? Um, how do you how do you start an organization like this? Um, what's the origin story? Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. So uh, we were actually founded by a great group of folks who all came out of the Bernie 2016 campaign. Now, all, all of them have gone on to do other things um, since then. But, you know, I was one of the, the early volunteers that showed up and um, and part of the group that continued it going. So kind of like what what brought this idea about um let's just time travel for just a second because we're in the middle of the 2020 primary which has just been i think we can all agree completely fucking nuts right um yes <laughs> i mean so we only just, had a minor apocalypse in the middle of it well, exactly and also don't forget the threat of world war three um so yeah we got a lot of things going on we in the middle that says it all exactly <laughs> So let's just time travel for a second back to the 2016 
um, primary and, and what that was like. Okay. Um, if you think back to, I, I don't know if you can remember this far because every, every year in Trump time feels like, you know, a thousand years. Um, but if you can just imagine what things were like in like February or March of 2016, remember at that point, the primary was wide open. There was really no way to know for certain who was going to ultimately end up competing in November and who was ultimately going to end up winning um, in November. So like a lot of people just assumed we were going to have President Hillary Clinton done and dusted. Like that's that's where it's going. Um, you know, some of us. I certainly was one of them hoping that Bernie was going to pull off a miracle. Um, I had a suspicion that we were going to come out with a very different outcome. Um, you know, there, people were thinking like, oh, man, are we going to get stuck with President Marco Rubio or, oh, God, what if it's Ted Cruz? And then, oh, God, help us. What if Donald Trump gets elected? Like, that's kind of where everybody's head was at. And everybody was really focused on the White House at that point. And this has been a problem for the Democrats for a really, really long time. I am not a Democrat. I'm a registered nonpartisan voter. Um, so I'm not here to save the Democratic Party from themselves. But that is definitely a problem that the Democratic Party has had for a very long time is that they are so focused on the White House and they forget all about the importance of the Senate, of the House, of down ballot races. And so, you know, the group that, that I'm talking about that started Brand New Congress, you know, they had this idea that, look, no matter who we end up with in the White House, we have this problem of this completely dysfunctional body of government called Congress. They just don't work. They don't work like they're supposed to work and they don't represent real people. And we have to fix this problem if we're going to get any of these priorities passed, even if all of our dreams come true and we get a fantastic, you know, um, democratic socialist, you know, progressive president who's going to back every policy that we want. We still have to have a Congress that's going to do business with that president, right? Um, so those folks left the Bernie campaign and started Brand New Congress with this idea of recruiting working class folks who were not career politicians, who were not like working their way up the party ladder and paying their dues and earning their favors and collecting, you know, billionaire friends along the way and just get people who, you know, had just regular people that have normal jobs that, you know, um, you know nurses and teachers and um, you know, first responders and, um, you know, even even just like blue collar workers, any kind of folks, um, you know, from all all across the economic spectrum. That's who we were recruiting to run for Congress. Um, Podcast. Yes. Podcasters. Why not? <laughs> no, that's not a real job. Don't. We don't have a real job. <laughs> <laughs> don't encourage us. Yeah. yeah. Well, why not? I mean, I'm not legitimize my pathos. <laughs> actually, actually, we're joking. But like one of the things that I have noticed uh, when there's discussion of presidential candidates is that there's a large swath of the Democratic Party that thinks of people in terms of qualified, like, um, mm -hmm. you know, a person is qualified and generally it means they've held previous office. But the more that you actually pay attention to party politics and the meat of what it takes to get elected, it's so much of running for offices like you're picking up a phone and you're dialing people who have money. And it's what is your social circle? How many rich people are in your social circle? And that's why exactly. we have lawyers and stuff like that 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 run for office and whole office. I mean, obviously, it's good to have knowledge of law when you write laws, but also like if they need donations, they can call other people who are 
their professional acquaintances, and they've all got a lot of money and they can all put it together for somebody to run. So when we get by the time we get to the to the presidential level and talking about being qualified for office, um, the qualification ends up being your ability to raise money in the system. Yep. Um, so that yep. when we talk about, well, why is the this debate stage uh, uh, 90% white? Well, it turns out there's something called a racial wealth disparity. <laughs> and uh, like people that are suited to like get up to the top of that system are, you know, people who have access to wealth. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you guys consider um, a qualified candidate? Is it completely ideological? Because uh, I'll also just say, when we looked for uh, people to book on our show, I-, I think Kennedy can attest to this. We basically just went through the list of brand new Congress endorsed candidates and just started <laughs> like calling them one by one. Um, yeah. So what? What? Well, yeah. What? Makes yeah. So get- uh, you know, great question. Um, yeah. So. Uh, the, the policies matter. Absolutely. Ideological standpoint absolutely is important, but it is not the defining quality. What we're looking for are people that have different lived experiences than the typical kind of representative that we have in Congress right now. When I say representative, I'm talking about both House and Senate. Um, so, you know, we're looking for people that have come from a variety of different um, economic backgrounds, you know, we, we want a Congress that looks more like America. That means electing more women, more people of color, people of different faiths, including people who are not religious, who are grossly underrepresented in Congress right now. Um, more LGBTQ folks, people with just a variety of different life and, um, and, and economic experiences, different ages, all across the spectrum, because those lived experiences are the things that actually inform their understanding of the policy. I can always go out and find a subject matter expert to help me understand how to write a bill in Congress. Those people are, they exist in plenty. I don't, I don't need to go into Congress with that expertise. What we need are people that have the experience of and, and have lived the lives that are going to be impacted by the policies that Congress is designing. That's very well said. Um, I I want to also talk a little bit about, do you guys think of, uh, there's something called PVI, and generally when we talk about like how realistic it is for a candidate to win a race, um, we think of the proportion of Democrats versus Republicans in a certain district. Do y'all mm-hmm. target districts that you feel are extremely close districts? Or do you also target districts where you feel like there's a longtime incumbent who has not been challenged for a long time? Uh, how do you decide which areas of the country to target? That's a really good question, too. And I, you know, like, so the Democratic Party has this whole, like, red to blue strategy. Um, and their only objective is to take red areas and flip them to blue areas so that they have one more vote in their column. But they're thinking purely in terms of, like you were saying earlier, um, candidates that are going to be able to deliver donors that are going to help feed the party's donor base, um, that are going to help prop up the entire political establishment of the Democratic Party. We don't think in those terms at all. We are actually a, we call it, we call ourselves postpartisan. Um, we, we are currently in this present cycle. All of our candidates are Democrats. Um, but that is not a fixed proposition. Uh, in 2018, we had uh, one candidate who was running as a progressive Republican, um, and we have uh, had another candidate who's running as an independent. And, you know, it was harder to find those folks in an election year when Trump was on the ballot, understandably. But those people do exist. 
they are running for office. And our goal is to support the person that is going to embody and fight for the right policies and has the right kind of lived experiences to match up with the district. So we're looking, we look at it from so many different angles. We have certain districts. Yeah. Sometimes like we'll, we'll, we'll decide to get involved in a race because we think like this is one that we think, you know, could be um, taken away from like a, a particularly pro Trump Republican. Like, yes, let's do that. Um, and sometimes that means running a progressive in a, um, the, you were talking about the PVI, so we might be running a, a progressive Democrat in a um, R plus 15 district. We've done that, and we've helped bring those districts closer to being able to be flipped because we've mobilized a new voter base in those districts. Um, so, you know, we we're, we're really we're looking for the candidate that's the best match for the district, um, and. I know, especially in the Trump era, it sounds really weird to talk about running someone as a progressive Republican, but I swear those people really do exist. And we need an insurgency inside the entire political establishment, regardless of what party flag they might fly under when they're running for office. We've talked about this a lot of times, how it seems like a lot of the time it is a lot easier to win over people who have traditionally voted Republican than it is people who have traditionally voted Democrat. You know, and, and yeah. how that is probably because centrists want things to stay the same because things have been working well for them. And mm -hmm. people on either edge, you know, who have been struggling are the ones who are really looking for a change and open to new ideas. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. I'm going to make a confession um, right here. <laughs> and that is that uh, I am a, I'm a recovering Republican of sorts myself. I, I actually was never registered as a Republican, but in my early voting life, I'm older, I think, than all of you. Um, in my early voting life, I, I voted either third party or Republican a couple of times and uh, and or there was a couple of elections where I just didn't vote because I was too pissed off um, and, uh, and and worked my way around to uh, really seeing how these policies were failing people and how the, the ideology just didn't stand up to the test of reality. And um, that's when I started following the Bernie campaign and um, really have never looked back. So I would. I would at this point, I would consider myself a democratic socialist, which is a really weird place to land when I started off as growing up in a very conservative family. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I, I definitely would agree with that. I think that people that have been voting Democrat their whole lives are a lot harder to convince because they, they just want things to go back to the way that they remember them being um, when it feels just safe and normal. Um Without, because they, their lives have been generally comfortable, and um, they they want to get back to that place of comfort, um, as opposed to like really addressing the fundamental structural problems that produce the reality that we're currently living in. So when you talk about the organization uh, mm -hmm. that you work for, getting people elected, uh, that organization is a PAC, and mm -hmm. we mentioned this briefly at the start of the show, but I did want to make sure that this gets in. Uh, a little bit more detail because I've seen many times on the internet people confused about the difference between PACs and super PACs. And I think this is best exemplified when you see arguments where people say, oh, why is it okay when Bernie has a super PAC? Which is, <laughs> of, of course, a, a fundamental misunderstanding of these structures and how they yeah. came to exist. So yeah. um, as, as someone who runs a pack, I figure you're the best expert we could have on to <laughs> once and for all clarify to the people out there listening, what is the difference between a pack and a super pack? 
Right. Okay. So that the very first thing people need to understand is that not all PACs are created equal. Not even all super PACs are created equal. Um, Brand new Congress is a, is what's called a federal PAC, um, which means that we are limited to the kinds, it, it, it limits the kind um, amount of money that we can take. And it also limits uh, or defines the kind of work that we're allowed to do with candidates. Um, and, and a super PAC is different. I'll explain the two. So a federal PAC means that we can only accept contributions up to a maximum of $5,000 per year, um, which $5,000 is a lot of money to working class folks. And I'm very proud to say that over 99% of our contributions are classified as small dollar contributions. That's, that's contributions of $200 or less. In fact, over 85% percent, I believe, of our contributions are actually uh, $30 or less. So like we really are, we, we run on small dollars and we depend on that. We've got folks that send us, there's, there's one gentleman in, uh, in, in, uh, I don't want to name his state because I don't want to reveal him. But anyway, there's one gentleman who sends us a dollar every time we send an email, just $1. And you wouldn't think that's a, that's a big deal, but over time it adds up. And you know, if more people did that, honestly, we would have more than sufficient operating budget. But like, so we're limited to the $5,000 cap. We, we, you know, the vast majority of our contributions are much, much smaller than that. Um, And then in terms of like what kind of work we're allowed to do, um, you know, we are allowed to collaborate with candidates, um, but we're limited in terms of like if paid staffers of Brand New Congress are limited in the amount of time that they're able to, uh, to work on a particular campaign. We have to support multiple campaigns, which we do. Um, but volunteers, I, I'm a volunteer, for example, the vast majority of the folks on our leadership team are volunteers, um, largely because we are a small dollar organization. <laughs> um, and, and the volunteers that we recruit to do the kind of day to day sort of work, uh, those folks can can volunteer as much time as they like for any one or all of our campaigns with no restrictions. And that's one of the great things about being a federal PAC. So we have those limitations, but we have more freedom to be able to communicate, collaborate, and coordinate with candidates. A super PAC is different in that you can take unlimited amounts of money from uh, from any any source. Okay, um, so if one person wants to give a million dollars, then they can do that. And I I believe I'm not a hundred percent sure about this. I think they do have to disclose their high dollar donors. I, I don't know if they have to disclose all their donors. I can't remember the, the specific rules about disclosures there. Um, uh, but the it, big, it's, it depends yeah. on the structure is basically yeah. what it comes down okay. to with that stuff. Yeah. It's like there's a number of different structures, but a lot of them allow f- with the super PACs allow for a, a number of different dark money avenues so that you yes, can basically they are. They have do. no idea where the money came from. Exactly. Exactly. So there's no there's there's no requirement to have like full transparency on who the money is coming from, whereas the money that we're getting is is strictly from individuals. And that that has to be disclosed for contributions, two hundred dollars and up. Um, but the big distinction for super PACs is that super PACs are not uh, ostensibly they're they're not allowed to coordinate with candidates. And of course, wink, wink, you know, they never do. Right. Um, and sure. yeah, right. Exactly. So. You know, there's there's limitations on the kind of direct coordination and, and like the closeness of the relationship between a super PAC and a candidate that they may want to support. Um, 
you know, that that's the biggest difference. But when I said that not all super PACs are created equal, like I'm very proud of the fact that we're not a super PAC. However, I don't think that all super PACs are inherently evil. I think it depends on the source of their funds and how transparent they are with the source of their funding and how transparent they are with how they uh, how they choose to operate. Uh, you've got a group like Our Revolution, for example. Um, I, I know that National Nurses United, the, um, the Nurses Union has a super PAC. Um, they do tremendous work. They support fantastic candidates. They're behind all the right policies. And they are super PACs so that they can accept larger amounts of money. Um, but they're they're disclosing who their donors are. And they are, um, I know that in the case of uh, both of those organizations, the vast majority of their contributions are coming from regular people that are just chipping in a little bit where they can. Um, so, you know, there's a big difference between that and people that are just like, I, oh, I started a super PAC. Great. Here's a check for $30 million. Don't ask me where it came from. That's completely allowed under that that structure, and that is definitely a problem. So I understand why there's a lot of confusion about it, but you know, you really just have to pay attention to where the money is coming from and what kind of work they're doing and how transparently they operate. Maybe you could also kind of like clarify for people listening as well, like um, the what it is that makes a pack good, because. I mean, I think like a lot of people just kind of have gotten this impression in their minds now that like all of this is bad. Um, yeah. So what what is it about that structure that is good compared to just donating to candidates, for instance? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as, as I mentioned, like we're recruiting working class people to run for Congress and we're talking about people that have the vast majority of them have never run for any office before. Um, certainly Almost none of them have ever run for Congress before. Um, and so they have no idea where to start. And the party is supposed to provide resources for candidates that are trying to run for office, but they don't really. What they do, the party picks their favorite and they funnel resources and volunteers and, and donors and support and infrastructure to the candidate that they like. Um, if you're running against the objectives of the party, then you're not going to get access to any of that stuff. And so what prayer does a, you know, a bartender from the Bronx, for example, <laughs> have to mount a successful insurgency campaign if someone is not helping them find the right resources and find the right answers that they need, get them connected with people that can help them, subject matter experts. So that's a, what we do essentially is we're helping candidates get connected with the resources they need to build strong and successful campaigns. Um, and along the way, we provide a lot of direct support in terms of coaching and strategy. Um, sometimes it's just straight up emotional support. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we put into the support that we provide candidates that is really critical to helping them get their campaigns even off the ground to start with. So I be nice to the pack <laughs> and then the pack becomes my best friend. And then we have a slumber party and then I'm president. Is that right? <laughs> uh, not quite that straightforward so Even what, a, does, what does the lead up to running an outsider candidate uh, look like logistically you know if somebody is listening to this and they're thinking I might want to do that what could they expect to do sure so in terms of starting a campaign yeah like what does that process look like you know broadly speaking yeah so for us you know if we're talking about the candidates that we work with at brand new congress um you know our recruitment process begins with nominations we ask the communities to nominate people that they feel 
would be representative for them in in Congress. And uh, some of those folks have already started a campaign. Some of those folks have not even thought about running for Congress until we called them and asked them. That's what happened with Alexandria. Um, we, we called her and asked her to run for Congress, and she said yes. And so here we are. Um, but in terms of getting them started, I mean, there's there's just so much to get off the ground. Like you've got to know like what kind of paperwork to file. Um, you have to know like you know, what are the, the the ground rules in terms of like how you start collecting um, contributions, when you're allowed to start collecting contributions, um, how to document things so that you can file your FEC reports correctly. Um, you know, there's there's people that provide those kinds of services, so we help candidates connect with with people that do that so that they have that that level of support. Um, just things like advice for what your website should look like, um, you know, you know, how your Twitter should be and why you should, you know, probably stop like sharing a bunch of trashy memes and, you know, start talking about about policy in a very, you know, in a, in a serious but but relatable way, um, you know, getting people kind of prepped for making that transition from just being, a, you know, just a, just a netizen Smoker. to being <laughs> what's that? A shit poster. Yes, yes. To make that make that transition from being a, a shit poster, which I enjoy my fair share of shit posting, um, make that transition to to being someone who's gonna you know put yourself out there as someone who wants to to lead and represent the community. Um, you know, there's I'm not saying that we we definitely are not trying to squash candidates' voices, but sometimes you know they just need need help kind of making that transition to present themselves as someone who's who's capable of leading. Um, and and a lot of that involves helping them understand their own power that they've already got that, you know, you you've got the, the life experience, you've got the the policy understanding, you know, we can help find subject matter experts to fill in the gaps where you need them. But, you know, you've got this like Congress was meant to be made up of regular people that was the whole design from the from the start um so you know we're just uh a lot of it involves just giving them advice about how to get all these different pieces in motion and and how to start building their um their campaign teams um you know our recruitment process includes well there's i'm I'm getting a a little bit ahead of myself because our recruitment process actually um you know a lot of that that I just described takes place after we've already um, approved someone to join the slate. And the recruitment process is, is fairly involved leading up to that standpoint. Um, so what, I, do, you, do you want to talk yeah, about what to... happens after like there's a community nomination? And, yeah. Uh, I, is there like a form that I fill out that's like a value? Yeah. Statement? Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the um, it starts with the with a, a nomination. Someone fills out the, our nomination form, and then we we do uh, some background research on that individual. Um, we'll we'll look at the person that was nominated. We're looking at the district. We're looking at the incumbent. How bad is it? You know, how bad how badly do we want to take off this particular incumbent? Usually, the answer is pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and we're uh, we're looking at district fit as well. So, for example, if we're if the, the district is a, a majority minority district, we're probably not going to run a you know straight cisgender white guy you know it's we're going to be looking for someone who's more representative of the community to um you know to to be uh, to to fit with what the people that that community are going to need in congress um and we have a number of conversations um there's different calls with different people on our leadership team we want everybody on the team to have 
the sort of the temperature of the person that we're talking to. We're assessing not only how serious they are about committing to this because it's a really, really big commitment, um, but also just sort of like how well do they fit with us? How well do they fit with our mission? You know, we've talked to some really great candidates that we really like that we're rooting for, but we didn't put them on the slate because they really wanted to focus on just doing their thing and they weren't interested in being part of this like larger group that we're building. The relationship building aspect is so crucial to Brand New Congress because it's kind of the secret sauce in what we do. Um, our candidates really learn to lean on one another. And so we take a lot of time to evaluate and assess those relationships up front and make sure that we're recruiting people that are going to see this as a two-way relationship um, because we're not just endorsing people and putting a rubber stamp of approval on them. We're really building a community of candidates and organizers to help build stronger campaigns over time. Um, and then the, uh, we go through all these different processes where we have different people talk. Um, we have candidates will submit assessments that um, help us understand the status of their campaign. Um, sometimes we'll, um, we'll give feedback on the information that they provide so that we can, you know, tell them, look, you know, this, this part looks good, but you need a little, um, help in this area. Here's some resources that might help. We're doing this all in the nomination phase. And then finally, after they undergo some of that kind of feedback and training, um, the last step is to go to the board for approval. Um, at that point, we've usually been talking to them for about three to six months, depending on the nominee. Um, so it's a very, very involved process. Um, and at that point, we really know like who's going to be committed and, and invest in this broader movement that we're, we're trying to create than just wanting to be running their own campaign and, and doing their own thing, which is fine for the candidates that want to do that. It's just not what we're doing, not our mission. Well, how would you um, evaluate your success so far? Um, not necessarily in terms of a batting average or anything like that, but yeah. just, uh, how well you've done in terms of like advancing your causes, uh, being stable as an organization. Uh, how do you guys feel that you're doing? And if you're not happy, you can you can feel free to tell us. It's just <laughs> yeah, no, this it, it, totally fair question. Uh, look, if you're just looking at like sheer numbers in terms of candidates that we got elected to Congress, well, you could say like, well, you only got one person elected in 2018. True, but I think it was a pretty big win. That was, <laughs> was a pretty big hit, and you know, our original concept when when Brandon Congress was first founded, the the, the very first vision was that we were going to just run hundreds of candidates simultaneously. The folks, again, they came off of the Burning 2016 campaign and their vision was, we're going to use all the things we learned on the Bernie campaign where we learned, you know, like massive digital fundraising, massive digital organizing, and just use that to support hundreds of congressional candidates simultaneously. We're going to like, we're going to get like 300 or maybe 400 people elected at once and just throw the bastards out and start over fresh. Doesn't that sound great? Sounds great, right? Sounds Didn't work good. out that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did not work out that way. Um, there's a lot of reasons. And I think, you know, Trump getting elected was definitely uh, a, a huge factor in that because it just completely changed the political landscape. Like everybody was having to reconvene or, you know, to, to recalibrate, I should say, um, in the wake of that happening. Um, you know, there's a lot of new groups that came on the scene. At, in the wake of Trump's election. And so like we're 
there was a lot of competing narratives. If, if you remember, again, time traveling back to like 2017, 2018, it just felt like everybody was screaming at you all the time, like, oh, my God, we have to do all the things for all the people at all places at all the times. And you just felt like you're being pulled in a million different directions, um, which was a, a valid response and is a valid response to the Trump um, presidency. But, um, you know, it, it definitely made it harder to get people to uh, to focus on, like, the the impact that getting good people elected to Congress could have. I think uh, getting Alexandria into office was so huge because it really demonstrated the power of getting someone who is principled, who is um, not bought off and, and not interested in being courted by these special interests um, and, and just standing up and speaking truth to power about priorities that we should be setting. You know, one of the first things she did in Congress was to was to establish, um, you know, that resolution for the Green New Deal. Um, and OK, so it was killed in the House and killed in the Senate and didn't really go anywhere legislatively. But by introducing that into the conversation, every single person who ran for president on the Democratic ticket in in uh, for the Democratic nomination in 2020 adopted some or all of the proposals within the Green New Deal. They, they all were talking about it and debating the merits of it. And that was not even a conversation a few years ago. Um, so that was definitely a huge factor. You know, we had some other legislative wins as well, um, just in terms of like the policy front. Um, you know, we, it, we started a pressure campaign in uh, March of 2017, so three years ago. Um, at the time, it was uh, HR 676, which was the, uh, the Medicare for All bill. It's a different bill number now. Um, and we took notice of the fact that barely any House Democrats were supporting that bill. Um, for Medicare for all. And we knew that Medicare for all was popular. And so we wanted to call them out. And we started a pressure campaign in conjunction with Justice Democrats and National Nurses United and started calling out, naming and shaming um, Democratic representatives who were not getting on board with that bill. And we started tracking it. And sure as hell, they started signing up one by one. And wouldn't you know it, as we started announcing our candidates, suddenly the incumbents that they were running against were super interested in signing up to co-sponsor Medicare for All. So we helped increase uh, kind of that movement of support within Congress um, for that that initiative and really helped move the dialogue on on healthcare in that way. Um, you know, we also like we were in 2018, when our candidates were first starting off with their campaigns, they were in many cases the only ones that were running on a pledge of no corporate PAC money. Um, that's obviously a much more um, common um, common stance for people to take now. Um, it's become kind of a benchmark for people and a, a valid one at that. Um, one of my favorite stories, actually, from the 2018 election, if you'll indulge me for this one, is uh, Rob Rice. Yeah. Rob Ryersey, who I mentioned uh, earlier, was our progressive Republican uh, in 2018. He's currently our executive director. And uh, Rob ran in uh, northwest Arkansas in Walmart country against a very awful Trump Republican. And he was running as a uh, as a progressive Republican uh, on, in the Republican primary against Steve Womack. And when that campaign was getting ready to kick off, um, he met with uh, his friend Josh Mahoney. Um, who was planning to run in the Democratic primary. 
And Josh goes, ah, you know, I'm planning to run kind of like a moderate Democrat sort of campaign. You know, I don't want this is a really red district. I don't want people to be too freaked out because I'm running as a Democrat. And Rob says, yeah, I'm running on Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. <laughs> and he says, what? You're going to get creamed. Well, sure, he did. And ultimately, in the primary, he got creamed. But what happened is that Indivisible and the Green Party of Arkansas and all these different progressive groups started getting really excited about Rob's campaign and started coalescing around the Republican challenger to Steve Womack, so much so that everybody who was competing in the Democratic primary had to keep lurching to the left to keep up with him. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. And in the end, uh, Josh Mahoney went on to win the Democratic primary and won and, and ran against uh, uh, Steve Womack in the in the general election, introducing those same concepts all the way to the general. Um, he was planning on challenging Tom Cotton for the Senate race this year, but he ended up having to drop out for family reasons. But, yeah, I mean, we just saw stories like that race after race, like other candidates were having to keep shifting to the left to keep up with ours, even the ones that were running as Republicans and Demo and, and uh, independents. Um, so, um, oh, sorry. I had to, you want to go? Go ahead. Okay. So, um, you know, you're talking about like running people in all these sort of unconventional places and unconventional ways. Um, mm -hmm. There's sort of an archetype for politician, right? There's, you know, rich white man of a certain age lawyer all of these sort of you know qualifications or whatever and demographics and i know one of the things y'all have influenced in terms of the makeup of our representation is you brought in a lot more people of color you've brought in women um you brought in women of color will we see a continued push towards other marginalized communities you know will we be seeing disabled people running for office or sex workers running for office or, you know. Yeah, I, th I think we're already seeing that. I mean, I, I am overjoyed to see that this cycle, there have been so many people running for Congress, just stepping up from these different marginalized communities. I know that there are already um, you know, disabled activists that are running for, uh, for Congress. Um, there's you know, people that you know, we I, I know for there's a couple of sex workers, at least that I'm aware of um, running in. Uh, I know there's one in Illinois and there's one in Washington as well. Um, so I think we're already starting to see that even beyond the well beyond the brain of Congress slate because we um, we have a limited slate. We want to make sure we're we're bringing on the candidates that we're able to support. Um, I, I think that, you know, that's partly partly a product of seeing an unconventional person like a bartender get elected um, to uh, to Congress and to see how, how tremendous her influence has been. Um, and it's definitely a priority for ours. I mean, we, we bake this into our entire recruitment process. We're always looking for ways to better represent different marginalized communities. I'm really proud of the fact that you know the majority of our slate are women. The majority of our slate are people of color. Um, you know, even looking into, like I mentioned, religious diversity. You know, we've got several on our slate this cycle who are um, who are Muslim Americans. We've got several who are uh, openly atheist. We've got a number that are just not religious at all. I think that's that's important to bring those voices into the conversation. Um, you know, I 
we don't currently have someone um, from the disabled community in our, our slate, but I would 100% welcome that. Um, would love to see that kind of representation in Congress. I think it's essential. So let's talk about just you for a minute. Um, okay. <laughs> given all of this, this chaos of the year, how do you feel personally about the path of the organization, the path of the country? Uh, how inspired are you? Um, about our current situation and the challenges that we're facing. Yeah, man, that's that's heavy. Um, look, I, I think Bernie says it best. D- despair is just not an option. We just um, we don't have the luxury of feeling sorry for ourselves and giving up because there's too much at stake. Um, I tell people all the time too that it's not any one person's burden to carry all of it. None of us can. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why. It's great that we have so many different groups that are focused on different areas. You know, we stay very focused on our mission to elect people to Congress. I think it's wonderful that groups like Our Revolution are out there, um, you know, supporting people up and down, you know, lots of different levels of from local races on up. Um, you know, me personally, certainly the last few weeks have been especially overwhelming, but it also steeled my resolve because I could see all of a sudden there's this political realignment happening right in front of our eyes. All these things that felt and sounded impossible two months ago, all of a sudden they're all on the table. You notice that nobody's asking, how are we going to pay for sending a, you know, a thousand dollar check to everybody? Nobody's asking that question. (laughs) And that was just unfathomable, you know, a few months ago. Um, So this is the time for us to really double down and, and tie Everything that's happening around us, that everybody's feeling this crisis, they're all like groping in the dark and feeling around for answers. This is the time for us to show how the priorities that we have been pushing for as a movement can answer the challenges that are facing us today. And it's so important that we do that because right now people are listening. People from all across the political spectrum are listening and are desperate for answers. And if we as a movement do not do that, then the right is going to do it. And these corporate ghouls are going to do it. The CEO of Boeing today was whining and crying and throwing a temper tantrum saying, if the government wants to have a, a stake in our company as a condition of the bailout, then we don't want a bailout. Well, then I guess you don't need a bailout, do you, buddy? You know, it's, we have to take control of this narrative. <laughs> we absolutely have to take control of it. And and this is, it's a scary time. It's an uncertain time. I know that there's a lot of people that are really struggling with financial security right now. Um, you know, and, and then of course, there's a lot of people that have vulnerable health that they're worried about, or they're worried about family members with vulnerable health. And those are all valid concerns. And as a community, we got to come together and, and help get people through this moment. But this is also an opportunity. If we waste this opportunity, then we're just going to have a repeat of 2008. And I don't know about you guys, I'm not doing 2008 again. Fuck it. We're not doing that again. We are not going to bail out a bunch of banks and just let working people get pushed onto the streets. It's not happening. I mean, I, for one, am entirely willing to become the rising tide of the proletariat and just, you know, drag things out of their houses into the streets. But (laughs) that's me. Like, I want to jump back to like 1820 when people did that and express my frustration (laughs) by shitting on their bottom or something. Well, I'm not going to blat- I'm I'm not going to advocate for any kind of um uh, uh, illegal behavior. Um but what I can say is that we have 
absolutely demonstrated the ability to disrupt power by taking over some of these structures, by by winning some of these races. It's hard as hell, guys. It is hard as hell, but it can be done. And when we get in there, just the amount of disruption that we're able to do just by getting our foot inside the door and getting inside the halls of power, and we can really... like. You've seen how much we've been able to disrupt things just by getting Alexandria into office. Imagine if we had like 50 on the same level, like we would literally change the world. Like Congress would just not know what to do if 50 people on that caliber walked in the door and said, hey, we're taking over. This is our place now. Uh, Keeping it sort of topical, we, as you mentioned, are in kind of a stressful time due to coronavirus. And I think it's fair to say that a political campaign is sort of like a virus stew waiting to happen. I mean, it's yes. all, all handshaking and speaking at events and, you know, door knocking. I mean, it's, it's, it's not really the best combination to go with the situation that we're in where we're supposed to be social distancing and limiting our contact with groups and things like that. So um, how challenging has it been to adapt to this new situation? And what are some of the things that Brand New Congress in particular is doing to responsibly campaign during a very unusual time? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for bringing that one up. It, I mean, it, it, this is something that we saw coming weeks and weeks ago. Like Over a month ago, we realized this was really going to be um, completely disruptive to our campaigns, but also to the broader general public. Um, and so we immediately started looking for resources. Like I have, um, I've worked, as I mentioned, I'm a volunteer, so I have a day job. My day job is I'm, I'm a training and development manager. And so I'm always looking for like resources to help people like change the way that they have to adapt their work processes or thinking about how they, um, you know, adopt a new strategy or how to train people in a whole new way of doing things on, on a turn of a dime. Like that's my specialty. And, and I also have a, a little bit of a background in occupational health and safety. And so with some of that experience, like I, I immediately started looking for uh, resources that we could provide our candidates. I just, you know, after three years of doing this, I shouldn't be surprised anymore, but I, I still continue to be surprised by the absolute vacuum of leadership in, uh, in different circles. Um, I assumed that election officials would be putting out guidance for campaigns that, um, you know, maybe the Democratic Party or some kind of political established organization would be putting out guidelines to help candidates like how do you adapt your processes and how you adapt your campaigns? Um, nope. Tom Perez says, just go to the polls. It's fine. Yep. Yeah, fine. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Joe Biden's like, if you don't have any symptoms, you're fine. You know? Yeah. That's complete, complete bullshit. So, you know, we were, we were looking for this guidance and it was not there. It just wasn't. And our campaigns were starting to ask us like, what do we do? Like how soon should we start changing things? And like, when do we need to cancel events? And so, we actually put together this, um, what we call the contingency plan for campaigns um, to help them adapt to the realities of, uh, of, of the pandemic. And, um, you know, it covers things like, first, how do you assess your risk? Um, well, at this stage, the risk should be pretty obvious. Um, if you're a candidate and you're listening to this right now and you have not already stopped canvassing, then you need to stop canvassing today. You need to stop canvassing today. I cannot stress that enough. 
Um, but you know, we put in this risk assessment tool to help people understand like how how much is this impacting your community? How likely are you or someone on your campaign staff or volunteers to become infected or to potentially spread it to other people? Built all of that that into the the process. Um, then we uh, provided some resources for kind of public education, like how do you understand the virus, myth busting, um, you know, good sources of information, sources to avoid. How do you talk about this with your constituents? We provided that kind of guidance. Then we talked about um, just how do you start adapting your campaign strategies? Okay, you can't knock on doors anymore. What do you do instead? Um, you can't have events anymore. How do you get around that? And we put together just guidelines to help people make those adaptations. And then also um, ending with this kind of um, this, this advocacy section where we have some of our candidates were really leading the way. Um, Rebecca Parson in Washington's uh, 6th District, she's was one of, if not the first campaign in the country to stop canvassing because she was very close to the outbreak. Center. Shout out to Rebecca Parson, our pod mom. Yeah. Oh, she hears this. Our very <laughs> pod mother, I believe. <laughs> She's amazing. We love Rebecca. And she 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 demonstrated fantastic leadership on this. And we saw a lot of other campaigns that followed suit when she made that decision. She she made that decision very early. Um, and, you know, then we had in New York City, which, of course, New York is now the epicenter of of the outbreak. Um, we have a lot of candidates in New York City. And this this was supposed to be petition season. And this is when all the candidates are going out there and collecting the goal is to get three times the number of signatures that you actually need to get on the ballot so that you can withstand any kind of a ballot challenge. Well, that's that's an active public health threat right now. If they were still out there and thank God they stopped it. But if they were still out there collecting signatures, they would literally just be passing the virus around all day long and, and catching it themselves. Um, so terrible thing. Um, one of our candidates there, Mel Gagarin, led um, a pressure campaign to um, persuade Governor Cuomo to um, to a adapt the petition requirements, um, to lower the threshold, to suspend petitioning so that people wouldn't be out there engaging in a, in a public health threat, and uh, and got a lot of candidates up and down the ballot to sign on to that. And I'm happy to report that it was successful. Um, Cuomo responded and, and did as they asked, um, which was the responsible thing to do. There's other parts of the country where petitioning is, is still being required. Candidates are still having to collect petition signatures, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've outlined some ways for people to kind of advocate to their local election officials. Hey, you should be bumping primary dates. You should be, um, advocating vote by mail. You should be um, suspending petitioning. You should be telling campaigns to stop canvassing and stop having events. Um, so we've outlined some of that. And then also the, the last part of it is this whole section about how to talk about um, our policies in the context of this outbreak and how to understand the legislation that's coming out of Congress. Um, and this was such an important tool when it was all compiled. We decided that this this is not um, something we wanted to keep to ourselves. We actually published it online because we feel like there's just no resources out there for people, regular people that are running for school board right now that are doing the same things. They're knocking on doors. They're collecting signatures. They're doing the same things on a maybe a different scale as our candidates are for Congress. 
and nobody is helping them. So we wanted to make this guide available to anybody who's running for any office anywhere. Even if they're running against one of our candidates, we think that the safety of the community comes first. And, um, you know, we, we really wanted that to be available to all. We published that uh, a couple of days ago for uh, for everyone's use. Um, so, you know, I can't tell you yet, like, how well the different adaptive processes are working. Um, certainly, everybody's moved to digital events. Um, they're, you know, they're doing virtual town halls, just like Bernie's been doing, um, just like Biden allegedly tried to do. <laughs> they, uh, they're... Actually, I actually want to talk a little bit about that. Um, okay. Because I've seen your, uh, I've seen your guy. I think we all went through it really quickly. Um, and yeah, Bernie is doing uh, uh, live stream events. And I've also seen... Um, a few brand new Congress candidates, uh, mm-hmm. probably Lauren Ashcraft and Rebecca Parson, most notably, mm-hmm. are using that. Um, can you talk about, for people that don't know, how complicated is it to set up a live stream? Does it take more than, uh, say, a week to set up that infrastructure? It does not. No. Um, you probably do need someone with a passing knowledge of like how to operate a computer. Um, but it's actually quite easy and there are resources. In fact, if you're feeling like particularly technically challenged and you really want to take this seriously, you know, there's a, the the guide is published on brandnewcongress.org. You can go download the guide. There's tips in there about how to get started. It's very easy to get set up. Um, and, and we give you several different options that'll help you kind of get started and, and link to tutorials that tell you exactly how to do it. And if you do all of that and you still like don't even know like where to start, there's an email address in our guide task force at brandnewcongress.org. Shoot us an email, say, help, help. I don't know how to do this. And we will find someone to help you because we're committed to this. We think that this is so important for public health that everyone deserves, everyone involved in a campaign deserves to be healthy and safe. And so does the community that they're seeking to serve. I was impressed because you guys have options for like people who are completely computer phobic. Like let's say that you'd raise like 50 or $60 million to run for president and you didn't know, <laughs> how, to, and you didn't know how to use a phone uh, and people were just want, wanted to hear from you. Uh, you actually developed some methods that people could use that were entirely offline based um, mm-hmm. that a person could use to uh, communicate with their constituents um, in a very well, fine time. Well, yeah, because, you know, we even have candidates that you know, one, one of the big problems that we have in this country, among many, <laughs> is the lack of, of broadband infrastructure. And we have candidates running in, you know, Paula Jean Swearingen running in West Virginia. West Virginia has terrible broadband access. Most people there still have landlines for a reason. Um, we've got, you know, uh, Senate candidate Charles Booker in, in Kentucky as well. Sim- similar problem there. So a lot of folks there wouldn't necessarily have broadband access to be able to jump on a, a video conference town hall and be able to have it streamed seamlessly. So for people like that, a teleconference town hall is a great alternative. All right, Corey, I have one more really important question. This is the question that's on everyone's minds on Twitter, I'm pretty sure. Uh When is brand new Congress running Party B for Congress? (laughs) We don't hear you. I'll tell you what, uh, when we open up our nominations for 2022, and you want to nominate Cardi B, I would be thrilled to have that conversation. 
<laughs> I hope you realize we absolutely are not joking. Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope you know that, that this conversation joking. is happening. Like, I, 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 I record that you have our consent to push you to run Cardi B, <laughs> who objectively should be in Congress. I don't know what this is, but somebody's got to move. I, I, I hope I hope you know that I'm 100% serious about considering it as well. I can't promise she'll get the nomination, but I will absolutely have that conversation with her. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Corey Archibald, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been a wonderful and enlightening conversation into trying to change politics using every tool available. Um, would you let the audience out there know how they find you on the internet, how they find brand new Congress on the internet, how they get involved, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. We'd love to have your support in any way. I know this is a really challenging time for everyone. So not everyone may have, um, may, may not have funds that they can contribute. Um, if you can, if you can contribute even, even just a small amount, you, you might not think that $5 is a lot, but to us, it really is. It's, the lifeblood of our organization. So you can head over to brandnewcongress.org. There's a, a link there where you can sign up and join our mailing list. Um, and there you'll also get a lot of uh, great, uh, you, you know, you'll get our emails where you're, we're talking about policy, where we talk about like, what AOC is up to. Um, you know, we talk about how we're going to challenge the, the things that Congress is, is doing wrong and help you kind of understand and break down the issues of the day. So that, that's what you get when you join the mailing list. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Brand New Congress, or you can find us on Twitter at Brand New 535. Awesome. Corey, thank you so much. Once again, this was a lot of fun. Oh, loved being here. Really enjoyed chatting with you guys. And we really enjoyed having you. It was a great talk. Uh, and I will at some point convince you to use booty pics as, you know, <laughs> that I, might be a negotiation concept i have i'm calling it thoughtaganda i'm just oh <laughs> i love right, it well, thank you so much for joining us i'm rachel at reach rachel con on twitter and yes i do post thoughtaganda uh, brandon i'm brandon buchanan at twitter and i do not absolutely do not post thoughtaganda I'm Kennedy Cooper at Kennedy T Cooper on Twitter. And if you don't follow the show account, it's at NSF wonks. And we post lots of great stuff over there. And also if you love the show and you want to help out and really help us like take this show to the next level and even just keep it on, on the level that it's at now, <laughs> um, <laughs> you can go to patreoncom slash not safe. We have um, lots of content over there for our Patreon subscribers. And also, even if you don't care about the content, it just really helps us a lot. We are not funded by anyone. We don't have any uh, corporate PAC money. Uh <laughs> if you maxed out the brand new Congress already, uh, I mean, just slide some of that extra our way. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, once a, that's, a, that's once a list of like five people. <laughs> Once you hit 5K with brand new Congress, then you got to come over to our Patreon, slide that $5 a month in. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening as, as always, and we'll see you next time. I love you. Bye. <laughs> Bye.